Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to Rest. Good morning, Rest Church. Man, the Spirit of the Lord is up in this place. Amen. Um, So this morning we come in the book of Romans to the thesis. How many of you ever were in English class and your, your, your teacher said, we're going to have a brainstorm session about your thesis? Yeah, you guys ever remember that? Yeah, and, and, and your thesis is always kind of the summary statement that brings together all of the rest of the aspects of where you plan to go for the rest of, say, that paper in MLA format or, or Chicago-style, Jared, whichever one you chose to write in, or whichever English Nazi was your teacher. Um, but today, we come to that place in the book of Romans. Everything else for the remainder of this book, for the rest of the 16 chapters, the next 15 chapters that we are going to go through, all all, all come to this moment, this this moment. One biblical scholar put it this way. He said that verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are the central nervous system of the entirety of the book of Romans. It's the central nervous system. It is the brain. It is the ethos through which the rest of the book is to be perceived. Not only do these two verses represent the thesis of the book of Romans, but it is the very, um, very centrality of the Reformation movement. It's the very reason that you are in this place today and you're not sitting in a Catholic cathedral. This text that we're going to look at today. And so if if you think about it from, from the Protestant view of Christendom, it is of the most importance It is very weighty. These two verses are the very linchpin that called the church back to the apostolic teachings on justification. In the 16th century, the the monk, the priest, the seminary professor, Martin Luther, 
in Germany began to wrestle mightily with the, the, the teaching or the dogmas of the, of the Catholic Church during this season in the 1500s. And in particular, there's two particular teachings that he began to wrestle with, and he, he started to find himself incongruent with the teachings of the church. And those two teachings, number one is called infused grace, which we as Protestants deny fundamentally, and also the teaching of indulgences, which we as Protestants deny completely. Infused grace is this notion or this meaning that God gives grace to a sinner in order that he might become righteous, but but this, this is different than grace through faith in that this teaching led to the life, that the life that was heavily focused on doing righteous and pious acts, that in an effort, that at some point, that as you arrive at judgment with God, that God might look upon your acts and see that you're constantly being saved saved and that this grace is being infused. And upon the, the weight of those righteous acts was the determination on whether you got to go to heaven or not. And so, and so Martin Luther, he, he's struggling with this as a, as a Catholic priest, as a Catholic seminary professor training other priests to go out and, and to teach the word. And he, he's wrestling with this very, this very notion of this. And, 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 and he goes basically in in conjunction with this, during this period, this, this new form of indulgences is being taught. And, and what has happened is under Pope Leo X, he began to, he began to need to rebuild the, the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It's the place where, you know, the, the, the Pope comes out with his beautiful hat and blesses all the people. If you're a Catholic, I don't mean any shade to you. Today, you will be converted to real Christianity. I'm kind of joking. <laughs> but, but here, the, the teaching of indulgences becomes really deep. And that the men were going, the priests were going all throughout the countryside, and they were raising funds to build the basilica. And as they're going out, they're saying things that are not found in Scripture. In fact, one of the most, um, most common guys referred to is John Tessel. And he would go out and he would, he would say things, like it's a phrase that's coined to him. You can look this up. He, he would say that every time a coin hits the coffer, or every time the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory shall spring. And so essentially this, this teaching of indulgences was essentially saying that if we would give money to the church to build the basilica in Rome, that those who had passed away, those who had died, would get time erased from their life in purgatory that they may go on to heaven. And so, of course, people are frantically coming and they're giving money. They're giving all they have so that their family, their family members who have went on before could, could be sprung out of purgatory. And so they thought that they could buy the salvation unto God through their indulgences. In fact, at one point, if you read the writings of Martin Luther, he said that at, at, during this early part of his ministry, he pained that his parents hadn't died yet. He pained that his parents hadn't died yet because he could not purchase their indulgence to spring them out of purgatory. This heretical teaching, kind of all together with this infused grace, 
brings Martin Luther to kind of this crescendo moment. Under the teachings here, we see that Martin Luther begins to to draft a document most commonly known to us today as the 95 Thesis. You've probably heard about the 95 Thesis where Martin Luther, and, and a lot of people portray this incorrectly, as if Martin Luther comes to the church at the castle in Wittenberg and he takes his hammer and he slams it on there and it's this big public spectacle that everyone is checking out what Martin Luther is doing. But that's not at all what's actually going on here under the surface. If you study the Reformation, what you actually find out about Martin Luther is he was attempting to draw out the faculty at the, at the, um, the, the seminary where he was working to begin to have a discussion around these two particular topics, around indulgences and infused grace, that he is writing, asking them to begin to have an open and honest conversation around the doctrines of the church. And before I get into all the things that happened after this, I want to I hit in on what is most prevalent. What is, what is it that he is trying to address? What is it at the core of Martin Luther's teaching? What is it at the core of the Protestant Reformation? It, it's this church. Salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone. That, that Martin Luther, in his, in his thesis, he's beginning to challenge this notion that we have moved apart from the apostolic teachings, that salvation is by grace alone, or by faith alone, on the basis, on the merit, on the righteousness of Christ alone. Therefore, he couldn't get down with the teachings of indulgences or with the teachings or the notions of infused grace because it wasn't taught in the scriptures, because he couldn't, he couldn't square it with what Paul wrote in the epistles. He couldn't square it with what Jesus taught in the gospels. And so he, he came to this place and he, and he said, I, I got to draft a document. I got to have an open and honest conversation about the doctrines of the church because it is leading people astray. It is moving them away from Jesus. And, and church, anything that moves us away from Jesus is heretical in nature. And the church must lop it off. We gotta, we gotta cut it off. It's like an arm that has gangrene. We gotta sever it out. So here, Martin Luther drafts the document, but he drafts it in Latin. And he hangs it on what's kind of essentially the the door at Wittenberg, at the castle Wittenberg, was actually kind of like the community bulletin board. So it wasn't like he's doing some defiant vandalism kind of thing. He's, he's, He's essentially putting it up at the community center where community conversations would occur. And he does it in Latin. And you go, why does it matter that he does it in Latin? Because Latin was the educated language of the church. The common people didn't speak Latin. In fact, that's part of the reason why the Reformation was, was so, so hotly contested is because they believed the Catholic Church taught that if we, if we taught in the native tongue, that it was desecrating the word of God and that it could only be done in Latin. And so he, he puts it up on there in Latin. But what Martin Luther doesn't contend with, what he doesn't think about is that his students love him. They absolutely adored him. And, and, and they take down his letter and they go translate it into German, which if they just translated one document in German, it, was, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But during this time, technology has began to evolve. We're in the 15th, 1500s, the 16th century. All of a sudden, this new technology 
of the movable typograph has came. And so virtually overnight, they translate Martin Luther's 95 Thesis from Latin to German and on the printing press begin to print out his 95 Thesis. Within 10 days of him nailing it on the church door in the castle Wittenberg, all of Germany, every village in Germany within 10 days had the 95 Thesis. And it led to an absolute wildfire and revolution because it brought in all of the teachings of Martin Luther before the papacy, before that of Rome, for them to begin to wrestle with the things he's saying. And he eventually is found to be a heretic and he's actually kidnapped by his friends. He becomes a, a, a knight in hiding so that he can translate the scriptures for the first time out of Latin into German to begin the Protestant Reformation. Because of this, it brought him to full odds. But what for? What was it all for? What was it all about? It was about theology. It was about the correct orthodox teaching of the apostles, about the things that the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter had passed down to the early church fathers, to the patristics, and on and on and on that the church had begun to depart from. So church, we cannot decouple ourselves from true gospel theology because when we do, we lead people to hell. And so what is the gospel theology of the Reformation movement? It is this, and man, if you spend 10 minutes with me, the guys will tell you who I pastor with here, they will tell you I'm like a hardcore nerd about the Reformation. Like hardcore nerd about it. But it comes to this. Sola grata, saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solos Christos, in Christ alone. Solos Scriptor, according to the scriptures alone. Sole di grata, for the glory of God alone. And so what, what does that mean for us? That we are saved by grace alone. You did nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to earn your good favor with God. And it was based upon your faith, your hope, your trust put in him and him alone. And it was on the righteousness, on the merit of Christ Jesus alone, according to the scriptures as the Old Testament prophesied and told us that, that the seed of David would come out and that he would be perfect, he would be sinless, that he would be beaten, that he would be stricken, that he would be cast aside, and that he would be publicly hung on a cross. That as the scriptures testified according to the scriptures alone, for who church? No, we're not saved for our glory, but for the glory of God alone. As you can tell, I love this stuff. So today we come to Romans 1. 16 and 17. So if you'll open your Bibles with me, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And in case you haven't picked up a a, a Romans uh, booklet over there, you grab one, take that home. You can take notes in it. I'm going to drop dimes and bars on you today. So So here we go, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to first the Jew and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Church, let's pray. 
Father, Lord, I, I beg of you to show up in this place in a mighty way, to stir in the hearts and the minds of, of your body of saints here, that you, would, that you would exhort us to move closer to righteousness, that you, would, that you would exhort us to decouple ourselves from our sin, that, Lord, that we would bow at your feet, that we would bow in your presence, and we would, we would have a spirit of thankfulness today for the righteousness that you have imparted, that you have imputed to us. Have your way today, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So as we come to verse 16, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna do something weird and different than I normally do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna split it all apart. We're gonna create a balloon print for all my fellow engineers here. We're gonna spit it all, split it all apart and then we're gonna bring it back together and we're gonna wrestle with the implications of what it means for us in our lives. Because there's, a, there's some things I, I don't want you to miss and we gotta get nerdy before we, we get real practical, okay? Can we get nerdy today? Come on, come on, come on. All right, all right, here we go. We have a megaphone moment here. For, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is a megaphone moment. A megaphone moment. Now that Paul has gotten some of the pleasantries out of the way in the introductory of Romans chapter one, he's gonna immediately basically make this line of demarcation to where he's going to shout this reverberating thing that is going to move all throughout the rest of the book of Romans. And so here we have this, this line, this line of demarcation. And what we're gonna see is that, is that he's gonna want his no, readers to know that the good news of Jesus is not something that he quietly lives out. It is not something that he quietly stews about in his bedroom or that he just has his, his prayer room closet moments. No, no, no. It is the very ethos, the very fabric on which his life flows from. Did you pick that up, what I'm saying there? It's not some bedroom kind of relationship. It's not some bedroom kind of religion. It is the very ethos. It is the very fabric from which his life flows. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We got to remember the group who he's writing to here. He's writing to the church who is in the epicenter of cult worship to the church in Rome, where there's all kinds of um, a, a sexual cultism going on, where there's all kinds of worship to false gods and false idols, a place where it would have been easier to just blend in with the mix rather than to go against the grain, a culture that celebrated sin as righteousness and a culture that said righteous living under the gospel was a capital offense. Did, did you catch that? He's writing to a church where sinful living is celebrated in their culture. And he's writing to a church where Christ-centered living is a capital offense. And so what he's saying here could be offensive to the church. It would essentially be like me saying to you today, and, and don't get this twisted, I'm not saying do this, Okay. But it would essentially like me saying to you today, hey, I want you to all wear an ISIS t-shirt tomorrow at work. And everywhere you go, celebrate ISIS at work. And you're like, what? Oh, that's the counterculturalism 
that's going on here. He is essentially saying for them to be rebels behind the enemy lines. He is saying, even though we are a rebel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So a statement like this is like a Mike Tyson undercut in the first round in the 90s, man. Paul, while a Jew, was also a Roman citizen. So no one from the church in Rome could have stood up and said, Paul, you, you, you don't get it. If, 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 I, if I speak out, it may cost me everything. Because Paul already knew. Paul already knew the consequences, the implications of living a life that said, I am not ashamed of the gospel Paul knew that the gospel was scandalous. Even today it is still scandalous, yet he was not ashamed. Paul knew the gospel of Jesus was offensive and folly to the wise of the world, yet he was not ashamed. I can imagine him dictating this letter to Tertius. And as he's dictating it, and Tertius is writing, in his mind, he, he, he's thinking, I can't pull any punches because the gospel is too important to run afoul by placating to their felt needs. I, I can imagine him as he's, he's oratorying, as he's walking back and forth in the room where, where Titius is, is, is writing and Tertius is writing and he's recording the words of Paul to the, to the church in Rome. I can, I can see in his mind going, I, I, I can't run afoul here. I, I gotta tell them the unabridged, the full truth, the full counsel of what the gospel is about. I, I can't placate to their needs. I can't tell them it's gonna be okay because it's not. I can't tell them to live however they want and it's okay because it won't be. And so in Paul, in his mind, he's, he's going, so I must let them know that I am not apologetic. I am not bashful. I am not embarrassed. I am not hesitant. I am not humiliated. I am not re reluctant. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be here today. You're new to the church and you go, you keep saying this word gospel. What, what do you mean? As a church, we're, we're going to recap just to make sure we're all level set on what this word, this term means. Because you can go to churches and you can hear it and it's implied. But we want to be at the literal meaning today of what gospel means. And so the literal meaning, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Euangelion. And it means good herald. And this is an illustrated meaning of what this word means. And so in, in, in the early first century, when a, when a king would go out to war and they would win a victory or they would even lose a battle, they would send forth a herald, a person who would go running before the army. And they would go essentially say, the king has won and they would declare his peace and his dominion over all of that area. 
And so what we have here is this depiction when we say the gospel of Jesus, the gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration. What is that declaration? Is that Jesus Christ has triumphed over sin and death and has set free all those who would place their faith, hope, and trust in him. And so when we talk about the gospel or the good news, we are good heralds declaring the declaration that sin has been defeated. Put most simply, the gospel is an announcement, a declaration. So what is the gospel declaring? What is it saying to us? What is Paul saying to the church in Rome? What's he saying to the church in Corinth? What's he saying to the church in Ephesus, the Thessalonica? What is the very core centrality of the gospel? It is this, that God created man and woman and they sinned in the garden. And because of that, they passed on, they imputated this recessive sin gene, this constant sinfulness that we all became sinners. The the scriptures say that through the sins of one man, sin reigned throughout all men. And so what we have now is we have a sin problem, right? And so God the Father, knowing, knew before it happened that man would fail, And in heaven had a plan, and that plan was Jesus Christ's son. Born of a virgin. Why is he born of a virgin? He is born of a virgin to break the curse of sin, to not receive the seed of a man, to receive the recessive sin gene. But he is born of the Holy Spirit through a virgin so that he can break out of that lineage. And that through him, he lives a perfect and sinless life. That upon the cross, He is convicted for crimes which he did not commit. And he becomes the propitiation, an illegal term, which means that he appeased the wrath of God, that he he, um, bore all of the fury and all of the rage of God the Father and his holiness upon sin. And he paid that penalty there on the cross, that he could become our substitution, our substitutionary atonement on the cross, that if we would place our faith in him, then we can be saved, not of our righteousness, not of our merit, but solely upon his. That in an essence, that 45 to 65 second is the gospel. And that's what he's getting at. I am not ashamed of that good news of Jesus. For it is the power of God for salvation. The New Living Translation translates this this, this section here. It is the power of God at work for everyone who Believes It is the power of God at work. This word, we looked at it a few weeks back. I think like three weeks back when I last preached. And, and this word in the Greek is deutimus. And it's where we get our commonly known word today as dynamite, right? Uh, it always reminds me of, uh, oh, tick, 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 boom. Anyways, I'm ADD in case you didn't know. The Greek word for power, dunamis, has sometimes elicited the reaction that the gospel is dynamite. While this is the root of where the word dynamite comes from in the Greek, dunamis, we have to be very careful how we frame the context around it. 
It isn't quite out of, I mean, it's quite out of place to say that, that, that the gospel is blowing up false religions. It's out of place, out of context. Here. Or, or that the gospel is going and is blowing up roads and making way. But really, what we see here is Paul goes on to explain what sense power is to be understood. The stress falls not on its mode of operation, but on its fundamental effectiveness. It offers something not to be found anywhere else, a righteousness from God. Check this out. It offers, the gospel through its power offers a righteousness from God. You, you, gotta, you gotta hold on to that thought there. He doesn't say it will bring power or has power, but the, that the gospel actually is power. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal cognitive form. It lifts people up, it transforms, and it changes things. In fact, to kind of underscore this in an illustration, a Syrian bishop once likened the power of God uh, into, um, into a pepper, right? Have you guys ever eaten like a really, really hot pepper? We have, a really, we have a really smart pastor here who likes to eat. He does like hot pepper challenges. And, and the, the thing about a pepper is, as you look at it, it looks really cold from the outside, right? I mean, it, it doesn't really have much of a difference between that of an apple on the outside, like as far as the texture, the look. And, and, and like, yeah, I can bite into a sweet bell pepper and it doesn't bother me much. But, but if I get one of those reaper things and I bite into that dude while it looks cold on the outside when you bite into it just a few seconds later it becomes like a burning inferno in your mouth right I mean have you guys ever eaten anything Jason Hammonds has ever made I remember one day he made jalapeno poppers and we're over at his house and we're all like, we all had one. Johan's shaking his head, yes. We, we, we bite into it and we all like put it back down and politely, he's like, why aren't you guys eating any of my jalapeno poppers? And we're like, dude, these are like DEFCON 5 hot. And like, we're all dying over there. He's like, oh, it's not hot. And he's just, I, I can't imagine the rest of the night how bad he felt after that. <laughs> In the same way, this bishop goes on to say, the gospel can appear at first, like an interesting theory or philosophy. But if taken personally, we find power. Did you, did you catch that? That if we take the gospel personally, while it might seem as folly or just it's a good thing to practice, but nothing really to be taken personally. If we do, in that we find the power of God to transform our lives. The gospel is not simply about the power of God, though it is, but it contains the power of God. The power is not our confidence or in our own ability. The gospel is powerful because it is God himself at work within us. It is God's work that brought us to salvation and it is his power within us that will bring about righteousness. So, so God is always at work, church. And, and that's what the, the underscore here is, is that this power, 
power that takes us to salvation is God's continuous work. It is always at work. When God, when Jesus died, he didn't go to heaven and take a nap. What do we see him doing? We see him going to heaven and he's interceding on our behalf. Jesus Christ is standing before God the Father pleading on your case. He's pleading on your behalf. He is fighting, constantly working for you. That is the power that you possess if you call Christ Jesus your Lord and your King. That's why we have to let the gospel go. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power unto salvation. Paul's saying to the church, let it go. Let it out of your mouth. When we just open our mouths and talk about the good news of God, amazing things happen. The gospel is a lion, church. Just set it free. It has the ability to completely change minds, hearts, our, our lives orientation, our understanding of everything that happens, the way that people relate to one another. Most of all, it is powerful because it does what no other power on earth can do. It can save us. It can reconcile us to God the Father and guarantee our place in the kingdom of heaven. For it is the power of God unto salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes. This good news, this message of Jesus, who is it offered to, church? Who is it offered to? Big, big word, big word on the screen, big word. Big word. Who's it offered to? Everyone. To the rich, to the poor, to the, to the wise, to the foolish, those prone to anger, those prone to peace, those who have made a mess of their life, those who are absolutely killing it. The gospel is offered to everyone who believes. It is for all who would put their faith on Jesus. There is no prerequisites. There is no pre-qualifiers. All you need is faith. This is the first explicit statement in the book of Romans. The only way to receive the gospel and its power is through faith. The only way to receive the gospel and its power is through faith. Faith thus is the channel or connection to the power of the gospel. He goes on to say to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and this right here is more or less a formality of what's being here. He's saying this is the pattern through which that God brought his word in the Old Testament. This is the pattern in which that God brought his word in the New Testament. So what do I mean by that? God chose the people of Israel. The Israelites are his chosen people who he gave the covenant promise to and then also, they're also the people who Jesus came to and Jesus ministered to first. They're the first people that the Holy Spirit fell upon in Acts chapter 2 during the day of Pentecost. And there from that moment, from the Jew, then to the Greek, then to the rest of the world, that is the mode, the pattern by which the, the gospel moved in the New Testament church. So now we've unpacked verse 16. Let's bring it all back together. 
there's two fronts for us to unpack this text. Number one, for us, the implication is that we should not be ashamed of the gospel in the world. That we ourselves should boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus, not just with our lives, not just with our actions, but with our mouths. Jesus tells his followers in Luke chapter 6, I mean Luke chapter 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus plainly spoke to his followers. There is no room in the kingdom for half-hearted commitment. Some modern-day speakers, we, we, we tend to try to try to make this more palatable. We, we tend to try to make this easier for, for, for us to understand. Well, well, Jesus didn't necessarily, no, 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 no. That's an absolute swing in the miss of what Jesus is saying because Jesus repeatedly said to them, I'm going to cost you everything. If you want to follow me, you got to be willing to give up everything. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And so Jesus was clear with his followers during his earthly ministry and that of the epistles as they followed on is that the call of Christ is that we would not be ashamed of the call upon our lives and that we would tell a lost and dying world about his good news, that we would not be ashamed of the good news of Jesus. This means, like Paul, we must live unashamed of the gospel with both our lives, our words, our deeds. And so what I want to say to you today, because the, the tendency is for us to go, Pastor, I just don't know how to share. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know where to start and have that conversation. And so and my, my D group guys who I've discipled, who I've mentored, they, they, they will know this statement. I, I told them, the last group who I had, I said to them one night, as, as I challenged them, share your, share your faith, share the gospel with me in, in two minutes. And they were struggling. They were struggling with it because what they were trying to do constantly is to, is to prop it up, to fix it, to have it ready or to package it in some certain way. But this is what I want to tell you is that the gospel church, the gospel is not a used car. It does not need a used car salesman. How many of you have been to a used car sales lot before? There five of you? Five? <laughs> this is a poor church. We see the tithing. Okay? So you've been there before. You've been dealing with these people, right? And they're telling you, oh, it's, it's so great. And like you get in it and, and, and like you start going down the road, your test driving, you're like, rug a chug, 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 rug a chug. And you're like, I thought this was like, you know, like this was like perfectly restored, new transmission, all, all of those things. What, what are they trying to do? They're trying to upsell you something that's not really as much of a value as what you're about to pay for it, right? The gospel doesn't need that. It doesn't need us to make it look pretty. It doesn't need us to make it look better. It's perfect without that. All it requires of us is to open our mouths and declare it. You don't have to make it better. You don't have to, you don't have to lie to people. You don't have to say, oh, it'll make your life so much better. You'll, ne you'll, never, you'll, never, you'll never ever face anything wrong ever again. That's a lie. It kills me when pastors say that. I want to like take my water bar and throw it at them and be like, he said, your life is not going to be very much fun if you follow him. 
right? So we don't need to make it look pretty. It's perfect. All we have to do is tell that that we are lost and that we had a savior who stepped down and grabbed us out of the miry clay and he picked us up and he put our feet on the solid rock and his firm foundation. That's all it requires of us. In simple terms, our role is only to cast the line and let the Holy Spirit do its role in convicting and drawing sinners to himself. Not ashamed. What's the other implication? There's also this implication here of not ashamed of the gospel in and of the church. I'm not talking... I'm not talking about rest church here. I want, you to, I want you to catch this. I'm not talking about rest church. We are a big C church here. We say it all the time. If God doesn't call you to be here, all we ask is that you be somewhere at a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-affirming church. Doesn't have to be with us. We don't have the secret sauce here. But Paul if you, if you take the totality of all the epistles and you, you begin to look at them, what you find is Paul is constantly reminding the church of the gospel. He says it is of first importance. I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. These are folks who have adjudicated, who, who completely understand the teachings of the gospel, but he's always bringing the gospel back front and center, back front and center, because it is the beginning thesis of all of Christian theology. It is the beginning thesis of all of Christian in life. So we cannot depart from the gospel. And, and he's doing that with who, church? Who does he take the gospel to first? The church. And so, so that's why he, he, he's saying that, man, the gospel, we can't be just as, not ashamed of it in the world, but we can't be ashamed of the gospel in the church. And so when we step out of fellowship of regularly meeting with the saints for worship, communion, exhortation, discipleship, and preaching, it says Jesus's bride is not worth my time, my energy, or my effort. When we leave, it's as if we're saying, I believe in the power of the gospel to transform my life personally, but I don't believe in the power of the gospel to transform his bride when it's broken. I want you to think about that because, because I, I get it, man. I get it from an earthly mindset. The church is broken. Can I get an amen? The church is broken. Why is it broken? It's because people are here. It's people, man. We're all a little crazy, all a little loopy. Got our strong opinions, but this should not surprise us. It should not be the reason that we leave and you say, well, I don't want to go to the church because I, I just can't handle the church and the people, they're hypocritical. It's like being like, man, I'm fat and I need to get in shape and going into the gym and finding fat people there. It's the same thing, man. They're there to try to get healthy. Broken people will be in the church because they're here trying to get healthy. Even so-called Christians are here trying to get healthy. And why, why would this, why, why should we not be ashamed? And why should this not surprise us? Well, well here's why. Proverbs 14, 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But an abundance, an abundant crop come by the strength of the oxen. So what's, what's, what's it getting at? 
If you want a harvest, you have to put up with the ox. In order to have good things, essentially, let me, let me, just, let me just boil it down for you here. Boil it way, way, way down. If you want good things, expect poop. Seriously, if we're distilling this down all the way, it says where there is no ox, the stable is clean because there's no ox in there pooping in that stable. How many of you have ever, ever, ever shoveled? Yep, mm-hmm. a few of us, yep. You, you know what, can I get an amen? You let that thing hang out in there for like an hour and it's like you walk in and you're to your knees, man. Like how did this happen? If we want the harvest, if we want God's good things, we need to expect there to be some poop. If we expect people, we expect poop. And and here's the thing, church. Poop is not the problem. Poop management is the problem. I I, I know, man, you're like, is my pastor saying poop 75 times? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Poop is not the problem. Poop management is the problem. We just need the tools to deal with it properly. Right? Right. When when we have broken people come in here and they make a mess or a muck of it within the church, we need somebody, Adam, come here. We need somebody who's going to bring out the hose and they're going to start washing. John, come here. Come here. We need somebody who's going to stand with the... With the wheelbarrow, they're going to come over here. Molly, you come up here. You can work too. <laughs> we, need, we need somebody in there who's, who's, who's shoveling. Come on, Laura. You can get, get in this mix. And, and we're, picking up, we're picking up the poop. Why? Because we want, we want the oxen in the stable. We want the oxen because what we know is that the strength of the ox will bring the harvest. Though they might be broken today, they don't, though they might be making a mess and a muck, pooping all over the place, we know that in due season, in due time, through the power of the gospel, that they can bring harvest upon harvest upon harvest. Church, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And so when we say, I, I, I'm checking out of the church, I, I'm checking out of the church, I, I, I don't want to be a part of it because, man, they're crazy, broken people. You guys are good and lay it down right there. When they're crazy, broken people, I'm telling you, I'm telling you this, you're missing out on God's provision for your life because there is redeeming gospel work still done here. The gospel doesn't stop at the moment we have regeneration. It continues on where we are saved daily. So poop is not the problem in the church. It's poop management. And the truth is, is sometimes, sometimes you're going to go into a place where they're going to misuse the tools. And the tools are, they're going to break. They're going to try to leverage you in a certain way and it's going to break on you. That doesn't mean that the tool is broken. That means that the person who's using it is. And so when we step out of fellowship with people, we're stepping out of fellowship with Jesus's bride. 
man, I love my wife. She's beautiful. She's smart. She encourages the heck out of me. And I'm telling you, if you came up to me and you insulted me, or insulted my wife right in front of me, bro, I'm going to double leg take down, drop you on your head. That's my boo. And the same is true of the church. This is Jesus' bride, who he is diligently working to perfect her. So poop's not the problem, church. It's poop management. We just need to use the tools. And check this out. Paul knew the churches were not perfect. And that every church needed some sort of of support. Here's the catch. God is not afraid of the mess. He's been dealing with it since the garden. We have to teach our churches and our church people and those coming on board to expect the mess, to expect some poop. But here's the thing. The gospel is powerful enough to deal with some mess. The gospel is powerful enough to shovel it out of the way. It has the power to transform lives. It has the power to take hopeless situations and bring light to them. The gospel is about poop management in the church, and it should reflect that. That's why we can't say, I love Jesus, but not his bride, because you are ashamed of the gospel within his bride. So the gospel being ashamed of it is not solely evangelical in nature, not ashamed also calls us into gospel community where there is going to be some ish, some poop. Not ashamed sometimes means I gotta carry not only my sword, but an attachment that lets me transform it into a shovel. Because the same word that cuts through can be used to clean up. The same word that can be used to cut through the division of marrow can be used to clean up broken lives. Verse 17. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to read to you from the New Living Translation here because there's... The problem with the ESV sometimes is because the way it's transliterated is that sometimes thought for thoughts don't always come completely out. And so I want to read to you to kind of help you understand what's going on here in the New Living Translation. The good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The gospel is all about Jesus, but here we see the achievement of the gospel, that we are made right in his sight. By the blood of Jesus, we have no debts, no liabilities owed. Paul is simply saying that the righteousness is received through faith and always by faith. It was here that Martin Luther had his lightning moment. 
He actually said it was like in his, in his writings in 1545, 46, he likened it as he sat down and wrote that it was like his Damascus Road experience. Martin Luther was a man who was plagued with the righteousness of God and his unrighteousness. He was plagued with it because what he, what he knew, he was actually a trained litigator. He was a trained lawyer. And, and so he, he understood the law to know that he was completely decrepit. He was depraved in every way that his, his decrepit nature constantly was coming up in him. And so he would spend four and five hours sometimes in the confessional. And it got to the point where the head father of the monastery where he was at was like, Martin Luther, stop coming to us for confession for four and a half, five hours to say you are coveting Brother Thomas's ex extra biscuit. Like this is literally where he was at. He, he was plagued with it. And so, and so he said, this is his exact words essentially, was that God's righteousness, do I love? No, God's righteousness, I hate. Because it reveals me to be a decrepit sinner. And so in the castle one day in this lightning experience. He reads this. And for the first time, he says, I'm reading out of the Greek. I'm reading out of the Greek and instead of reading out of Latin. And when I'm reading out of the Greek, what he notices is going on here is, is not a righteousness, uh, not, not necessarily talking about God's righteousness in and of himself being revealed from faith to faith, but it is that God's righteousness is literally given to us and that it falls upon us and we become the righteous of God. And he said for the first time, he, he exploded as if the Holy Spirit revealed to him for the first time salvation upon faith. And it was there in that moment he knew he was eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Our right standing with God is only found through placing our faith in him, putting our hope, our trust in him as Savior and Lord. It requires nothing more than faith. But we don't just become righteous and have faith to start. It doesn't end there. And then we're left to basically do it all ourselves. That's not what Paul means here when he says from faith to faith. Check this out. Because there's such depth here. There's much more going on in this verse than just forgiveness because we always want to just celebrate the forgiveness, but, but we, we aren't just forgiven and left that way. Check this out. Many people think Jesus died merely to forgive our sins or our sins were laid on him and we were pardoned when we believed in him. And that's true, but that's only half of the Christian salvation. If, there, if this was all that Jesus did, did, we would need a new wiped clean slate constantly. It would be up to us to add credit or merit to our account. But here Paul tells us that we have been given righteousness rather than being deemed not guilty. See, he doesn't just look at you and say, not guilty. He deems you righteous. He transforms you from, from not this, this guilty state, not just not guilty, put to righteousness. But, but here's, the, here's the thing. It's as if God came to you who was on death row for a capital crime, about to be punished to death. And he, he doesn't just take you out and say, hey, I'll pardon your sentence. 
No, no, no. He takes you out. He says, I pardon your sentence, but I'm also going to put upon your neck the, the medal of honor. You no longer are just a criminal, but you are the highest of righteousness. You are the epitome of goodness. That is the transformation that happens in the gospel. So while, while you today might be fighting inside of yourself saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not the mother I need to be. I'm not the father that I need to be. That might be true in and of an essence, but don't let it for a moment make you question your salvation if you call Jesus Lord because where you stand today is congressional medal of honor you're no longer on death row you're no longer just forgiven but you are perfect in his sight he is credited to you his righteousness his righteousness not today not from just the moment it starts but from faith to faith from life to death John Scott says the righteousness of God is God's righteousness initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. The righteousness of God requires from us is in the righteousness God has provided for us. The righteousness that God the Father requires from us is in the righteousness God has provided for us. Everything you needed, he has provided. Everything you needed, he has provided. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. It's a quote to say essentially that this message of faith, grace through faith, is consistent all throughout the scriptures. Romans 117 is the Reformation verse because here Martin Luther had his epiphany understanding this alien faith, he called it. It was a faith that was completely unexplainable, that it was completely outside of ourselves. We did not possess anything of it ourselves. A faith that was imputed, that was given, that was passed down from Christ Jesus to him. It's here that we're able to walk out of our grave clothes, that we're able to walk out of our sin, our sin and step into the righteousness of Christ. The Christian is not only justified by faith, but we are expected to live by faith in order to please God. And so if you sat here today as a non-professing Christian, who feels the, the, the weight of the righteousness of God bearing down upon you, who, who, who knows that in your heart of hearts you are a sinner, you are separated from relationship, you are separated from covenant with God the Father through Christ Jesus, then I want to tell you this, just like Martin Luther, you can have the imputed righteousness of God pass to you today. 